0: issue for all women.
1: Hey guys, it's International Men's Day on Tuesday, or today if that's when you're listening. So as with previous years, we've decided to let men talk for an entire week. Because gender inequality is rubbish for everyone, isn't it? That's a rhetorical question, by the way, it it absolutely is. So if you've not already heard it, in yesterday's episode, Hannah and Mickey spoke to Patterson Joseph, star of The Old Vixer Christmas Carol, about the timeless appeal of Dickens, Peep Show, The Leftovers, and why he won't be answering any more questions about being an actor of colour. In other episodes, I'll be nattering to Lem Sisay, poet, broadcaster and author of the Sunday Times bestseller, My Name Is Why, about a childhood in the care system and listening to others. As well as Chris Spencer, a.k.a. Cold War Steve, about finding solace in a hellscape and fighting for Bungle. Wow. Mick will be catching up with Rich Wilson, comedian and host of the excellent podcast Insane in the Men Brain, to talk putting the men into mental health, treating yourself as an ongoing project, and the wrong time to helicopter. And Hannah will be talking toxic politics with Chris Addison and Alex Andreu. Phew! But in this episode, Hannah and I chat to the main dude at BBC News at Six, journalist and author of The Burning Land, George Alagai, about living through momentous times and the relentlessness of the news cycle. I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed chatting to George. We are joined by, and by we, I mean me and Hannah. Hello. We are joined by George Alagai. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Journalist, author, BBC News anchor. Do we say that here?
0: I don't really. I'm not sure about anchor. Actually, it makes it sound American.
1: Chief presenter of, presenter of presenter. BBC News yeah. at Six.
0: Yeah. 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 I do the I do the news at six. How about that?
2: You, you are the longest serving. Is, is that probably.
0: Right? So they tell me. I begin to worry when people say that, you know, because <laughs> the next thing comes up... In fact, Jen's probably going to do it now and call me a veteran.
1: <laughs> I, it, wasn't, it wasn't on my list, oh, but I mean, <laughs> I, I can do, if you want. Uh, I'll try to steer clear of what it's like, veteran. You never know how it's going to go down. You're also, as well as being chief dude of the BBC News at Six, you have been a uh, foreign correspondent yeah. for the BBC, so you've seen a lot of stuff. And you have a book out at the moment, which we'll come back to. It's called The Burning Land. This is basically how we currently on the podcast <laughs> describe the world. The world, yeah.
0: What, the world the world? The burning, land. The burning oh, land really Just, just, just <laughs> the
1: scorched earth, basically. <laughs> With that in mind, doing what you do, it's kind of like this perpetual news cycle, and it's just insanity at the moment. And I would like to know a little bit about what it's like to cover that, and how this is going to sort of increase or implode further as we head into a general
0: election. It's quite interesting, actually, because I've got a perspective on at the moment of it that I might not have had. Well, I'm being treated for cancer and, and at the moment I'm one week on, one week off. So I had one week where I'm just sitting there with this tube going into me for three days. And all I'm doing is we're kind of watching the news. And actually, it's quite interesting because... I'm waking up in the morning to the Today programme, you know, because I'm slightly obsessive about this and, you know, I haven't got the energy to do anything else. And you see a a story unfold in all its nuances through the day, whereas I then switch into my other life the next week and stuff is, I mean, it's the news at six, but actually we really, really, really start writing the programme I do. From about three, because what's good at sort of if I'd written something at one, it's kind of these days out of date by about two thirty. Yeah. So I, you know, wait very 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 late to do it, and I just can't remember a time when it was this intense. And where the stakes are so high, and I'll just give you a tiny little example of of why every word seems to matter. I mean, that's what I do. That's my job, is every day to compress an idea that someone's been speaking about, and mostly it's Brexit, into 30, 40 seconds that will set the viewers up for the report that's coming up. Now, in in an interview, in the melee of a live programme, I referred to our Prime Minister as Boris. I, bad you know he's mr johnson he's boris johnson yeah. he's our prime minister he isn't boris but i did you know i was interviewing someone and said boris has just said this and immediately there was a kind of comeback on, on you know from few people on twitter who follow me saying hmm yeah so we know where you're coming from kind of thing like boris was my best mate and that's why i called him Boris. I mean, obviously none of it true but it kind of gives you an idea of, of just how finely balanced everything is, how sensitive everybody is about allegiances, and we're, we're looking at each other in ways I think we we just weren't prior to 2016. Yeah. You know, there's lots of differences we've had, but there's this one big difference over, over Brexit, and people are kind of trying to force people on one side or, or another of this fence line, and and I, I just find that challenging. But also, I'm, I'm just so aware of. How, how much I want to get it right, and how much, you know, in a weird sort of way, I'm enjoying my work at the moment because I can see this what a divisive issue is. And goodness knows, I mean, if we didn't have the BBC, I mean, you might say he would say this wouldn't, wouldn't he? But if we didn't have the BBC, we'd have, we'd be trying to invent it because, you know, to have someone like me who who both by inclination but by also by law basically who has to sit down and try and reflect two, three, four sides of an argument. Is so so important at the moment because because there's so much noise, so much static out there in uh, through social media and whatever. That yeah, it's an incredibly confusing time if you're just uh, kind of uh, someone listening mm. or watching the news.
2: I've been a journalist for like 25 years. I feel like it's you know the best of times and the worst of times, and people outside of journalism sometimes struggle to understand that things that other people find depressing I find really exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same point I periodically keep hitting a brick wall of oh it's too much. I can't keep reading the same story over and over. We I saw someone on Twitter say and it was really interesting that this was a marathon that we had chosen to run in a series of hundred metres
0: sprints.
1: Yeah, and
2: this that's really good. Isn't is what it feels yeah, like, yeah. I think. Sometimes. Yeah, it,
0: it, it's relentless. It's been absolutely relentless, and you, you can see it, see it unfold in, 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 in just. And also, you know, the the, the the language, the way we treat each other, and and so on, has really been tough to take. I think, and, and a bit. I find it depressing that that we've some of us anyway are not have not been able to conduct ourselves in this thing in, in a. In a way in which just kind of helps us all get get to the end point, whatever it is, together and in shape.
1: It's a bit terrifying at the moment, isn't it? I find it all; it makes me feel quite anxious. The sort of perpetual cycle of crazy, crazy yeah. things.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you use the word anxious. I mean, I feel actually not just on something like Brexit, but but the climate emergency. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, these are problems to be solved. Actually. But I think sometimes the way in which they're, they're uh, portrayed, the way in which campaigners and so on talk about it, leads to anxiety. And the trouble with anxiety, it cripples creativity. It, you know, it is not good for us. You know, when you're anxious, you're not at your best. And actually, we need to be at the top of our game. As I said, whichever way Brexit goes, um, whatever you know, the climate emergency has for us, only creativity Uh, And a kind of positive attitude is going to get us through to it. So I worry about this anxiousness thing and and, uh, perhaps more on on the climate emergency than than on something like Brexit, where I I completely get it. But sometimes, you know, we we hear, for example, that young children are kind of more anxious than they were certainly in my time. I mean, I'm I'm an old guy, but um, you wonder what it must be like. You know, I've got a granddaughter now, you know you know, in three, four years, you know, she's going to be asked to go and hold a placard somewhere and saying, you know, millions of people are going to Mm. die or whatever, you know. On the whole, solutions don't come out of fear and anxiety. They tend to come out of, Mm. do you know what, let's get this done.
2: That's interesting, because we were talking just before we came up here about, I mean, I lived through the 1980s, but as a young child. And the the first half of the 1980s was quite (coughs) quite stressful as a child to experience it. And a lot of my friends and, you know, my siblings have children around the age that I was then. And I do wonder how much we goes in because yeah. people thought that it didn't go in, but I was worried about acid rain and AIDS and nuclear war when yeah. I was eight because it was there and, and even if people try to shelter you from it. I mean I
0: think one thing's in take, take nuclear war, okay, mutually assured destruction and all of that, which is by the way, real, you yeah. know, in some sense. I mean I'm a bit, well, quite a bit older than you, but, you know, Bay of Pigs, it was always there as a backdrop. Back but I'm not sure that we involved kids in the argument. Oh, no.
2: Yes, you're correct. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, they might have soaked it in, as yeah. you did. It was there and you kind of saw it and you kind of, as a child does, you know, you don't necessarily able to analyse it and work out what you think about it. But it kind of soaks in. That's one thing. What's going on now is, is, a, is a step further, I think. Kids are being involved in these arguments in a way in which they weren't before. I don't know, maybe it sounds controversial, but, but, but I'm not sure if we should be doing that to kids. I think, um, you know, kind of let them be children. You're not so sure. You're, you're not know. no it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, I what's it like? I, I don't know, but what's it like if you're like six, seven, and you're on a march...
1: It's probably rubbish. Yeah. And everybody's
0: screaming, one <laughs> yeah. thing or another, shouting. I know they talk, you know, and some people always like like really like Glastonbury out there, you know. Most, but it, some of the time it isn't. And all the climate stuff, you know, that the world, you know, sort of millions of people are going to die and, and so on. Which is true, but, you know, it is an emergency we're facing, but...
1: I mean, all I know is that my dad really liked walking when we were kids, and I just remember being on Bobman Moore and thinking I'd rather be watching Dog Tanya. So <laughs> I imagine felt much the same. Sort of linked to that, we talk a lot on the podcast about this sense that you're living through history. And as Hannah was saying, like, for me, it certainly feels that way. I'm 37, I can't think of a period of time where there's been so much change politically and economically. And... But obviously, you have covered a lot of things. In your time as a journalist, you covered the Rwandan genocide, you've covered the 9-11 terror attacks. I've got lots of things written down here I could go on, but you cover covered some pretty momentous things. So if you kind of look at the things you're covering now, comparatively speaking, do you feel like you're living through a momentous time? Does it? How does it compare?
0: I mean, you mentioned some of those things, you know, Afghanistan, 9-11, Rwandan genocide, Liberia. And... The thing about those times is people kind of assume that because I've witnessed those things, uh, literally humanity at its worst, that I must somehow therefore be pretty pessimistic about the future of our race. And actually, uh, I think exactly the reverse is, is, is true because... And I look back on those years, twenty years actually, and before the BBC, so even longer, uh, as a foreign correspondent, and, and think, well, okay, what did you learn, George? And I, I learned two things. One is that the, the, this thing we call civilization is pretty sk- skin deep, and it, it needs nurturing. It needs caring for, because if you don't, it falls apart, and you very quickly end up in a Rwanda situation or in a Bosnia situation. I mean. You know, in my time, in my continent, women were being raped as a weapon of war. How did that happen?
2: Yeah,
0: Eh? Mm. I mean, we're in a civilised part of the world. How did that happen? So that's one thing I learned. But the other thing I learned, including in places like Bosnia, where I also went very briefly, has to be said, was precisely because I've been in those places, you know, the most desolate places in the worst of all possible time, i have seen dignity and resilience of a kind you and i you know we just just, which i wonder even if we have the capacity for it i've seen the human spirit people talk about the human spirit and i feel like i've touched it and you know whether it's a mother confronted with a number of children and she can only feed some of them and has to make that decision and retain her humanity uh, whether it's a woman in, in Mali, I always remember, who in the third year of a drought carried on digging her patch of earth, telling herself that this year would be different and she'd be able to feed her kids. That's the best of humanity and it appears in these dark places. So, But, th- 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 you know, are we living through history? Yes, we are. But I'm not actually daunted by it, In, in a w- which the question might suggest. I, actually th- I just know we'll get through it. Because, we, you know, I've seen people get through a lot worse and come out the other side.
2: I went to the Don McCullen exhibition that they had um, recently. And he's a man who's seen some things, but he's a man Um, who's carried those things around with him, I think, quite a lot. How do you say, that's work, I can't take it home?
0: I'll tell you, I think photographers, it's more challenging for them in a a way, because they do, and especially if you're Don McCullen, uh, you know, um, and Luke Delahaye, James Natchway, these great, great photographers. I'm showing my age, but those are the guys I, I worked with. Karine Dufka, I mean she was an amazing photographer woman. They have to get so close, okay, to, to tell the story that they're almost in it.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and and that is quite challenging. And what they don't have in the same way as I have as a reporter, there's something cathartic about being able to tell the story. It's it's almost like therapy. So I mean, you know, television's not that different, actually. You've got to get pretty close. If you, you know, I never enjoyed being in a war zone, but, and I only went there because that was the only way to, to tell the story. But the act of getting back into my, the tent or the, the, the house or the hotel, whatever, wherever we were, and getting on my keyboard and writing the story was a cathartic thing. And I did that thing that journalists have perhaps, we've kidded ourselves for a long time, that we're somehow making the place a better, mm-hmm. the world a better place. Because we're telling that story, and, I, and the reason why I think photographers have it slightly more differently is, is I, I do know that one or two of the camera people that I've worked with again suffer from the, the, the stress of it more than I do, and I think it's because they have their eyes to the to the um, the lens, the viewfinder, yeah. in a very closed way. Uh, so when I was working with a, with a, uh, a cameraman. For example, I was the kind of eyes and ears looking around, making sure we were going to be all right and I could take it all in, as I say, I could write the story up. whereas he or she was always on the lens. And I think so. That it kind of sits in their brain in a different way. I, I don't know if, if, if it's, it's my explanation. I don't know if it's true or not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because they also spend time with the print. Can I ask you, you've interviewed a lot of people. Who, who do you think the most interesting person you, you've spoken to? Who, who do you feel like you kind of did touch history when you spoke to them?
0: I'd like to say... Nelson Mandela, and I, I was so privileged because I interviewed him twice, one-on-one, which is very rare because you can imagine, you know, the whole world and yeah. and his auntie kind of wanted to do it. But he was actually quite a hard interviewee because, I, and I, you know, we, we talked about things staying in the mind and how, cam- you know, photographers deal with things. It was always very, very difficult to get him to talk in any sort of personal way. He always kind of outsourced the thing and he would talk always in we found this we struggled and i'd be saying but what was it like you know when you were and he he would never do that and i often wondered whether that was his way of kind of dealing with uh, you know 27 years in jail knowing that his that his wife was getting you know put in solitary being beaten up that his kids were without their father and their mother etc all of that whether he that's the way he dealt with so consequently i mean Honoured, humbled to be sitting in the same room as a man like that, uh, you know, holding a mic rather than the way Jen's holding this mic. But the, the, the person I remember more than anyone else actually is is Archbishop Tutu, another South African. And it's kind of funny, double act, you know, those two had. You know, he was the conscience of the anti-apartheid struggle in a way in which, you remember Nelson Mandela started off because he led the armed, yeah. armed wing of, uh, of the ANC, and Tutu was, I always remember, you know, Mandela saying it as a joke, obviously, you know, about Tutu once. He said, well, I've never been able to you know, trust a man who goes around wearing a, a, a long dress all day, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And, and they had this sort of, this kind of odd couple thing going on between them. But Tutu, I, I just felt when I interviewed him, there were, he exuded a kind of moral certainty, not a tactical certainty, not a strategic certainty, not a political certainty, but a moral certainty. I am sure Nelson Mandela was a moral person too, by the way, but he didn't exude it in the same way. You know, he was, by the time I met him anyway, uh, you know, he was obviously more than a campaigner, he was a politician and he was a statesman. Yeah. And, and Tutu was, was different. And uh, I, I, I guess, in the scheme of things, I, I feel more touched, more blessed by having been in his presence, I think, than almost anyone else.
1: Speaking about the kind of newsroom, I have a friend who works in a newsroom and she found the culture to be extremely masculine. I think she found it... She struggled more with it, actually, after she had children. I think the the news cycle itself she found like a bit harder to take as well. And I'm guessing it's a lot better than it used to be. I wonder... How much sort of change you've seen in that over the years? I think it
0: has got better I mean on this question of coming back after having children finding it difficult it was I uh, had to spend maybe eighteen months out of the newsroom because when I first got diagnosed with cancer about um, in back in 2014 you know I had five operations loads of chemo and recovery and so on and I was really really frightened going back into the newsroom I phoned my editor and said you're going to have to hold my hand I just I don't feel I can do any of the things I use and this is a guy who in the in the six months before you know I'd got ill I'd taken I'd I'd been for eight hours to America to do an interview then flown straight to Rwanda did the programme from Rwanda I'd been to Colombo, did the program from Colombo, in Colombo, got told to go to the Philippines and do the program from there. <laughs> you know, I handled all of that. And suddenly I was back in the newsroom amongst my friends, amongst my colleagues. And I said to him, you know, I just need help. I remember talking to well, a great friend of mine, Sophie Rayworth. And I said, Sophie, I, I my, you know, my think brain's gone, you know, I just don't know if it's there anymore. And she said, well, Get used to it. You know, what do you think women have felt like? Well, we've been away for a, for, for a few months. And then she said, you're going to be fine. You know, we all think that. Anyway, that, so that's a bit of a digression. I think, yeah, look, it has changed. When I first joined the BBC 30 years ago, just over, I didn't get on, but, you know, and in some ways, you know, getting into the BBC was kind of almost easier than getting on within the BBC. I mean, the networks and internal networks and all that sort of thing that that operate. And I remember... My line manager at the time sort of said to sat me down and said listen mate, I want to see you back in that newsroom, you know because I was obviously saying I'm not getting on, <laughs> you know and and he said I want to see you in that newsroom ripping throat
2: <laughs> wow and I'm thinking oh <laughs> you
0: know I don't even know what it, how, how do you do that you know it's just not in me but that was a kind of culture and and of course before that and by this time that had finished but before that you know we all, when I was in print you know we had a couple of pints at at lunchtime and a couple more in the evening and that kind of thing now that kind of language let alone thinking in that way just wouldn't happen now it's a much much more supportive place in in, in the newsroom so things are changing but as I say I think it's quite hard for me because I'm at the sort of top of my the tree and uh, and so on I think it's it's still quite a I imagine it must be quite an intimidating place if you're If you're young and just starting out, and I think there's loads more we can do for bringing on new talent, especially diverse talent. And and in my case, this is something that that, that I obviously think about quite a lot. Black and minority ethnic journalists, bringing them on. So lots has changed, but I think there's more to go because, you know, you need that support. I mean, what I found difficult when I started off getting on in careers is about confidence you know having having the kind of front to say i can do it and doesn't always come naturally to a lot of people i don't know if this is true but i think women may have that you know sort of slightly more diffident about about you know shouting out and saying like yes we're
1: told from birth from birth exactly
0: and and similarly with me because i've always thought god you know i came here at the age of 11 and slightly conscious that I had to get it right. You know, I, I couldn't offer myself to do something unless I was absolutely sure. Because if I failed, they'd think all brown-skinned people had failed, you know, or they're all thick or yeah. whatever. And I think there could still be, you know, more of that kind of supporting and nurturing. Having said that, I mean, one of you just said, it, it, it's a vicious cycle out there now. You know, it's 24 hours. Things are turned around in minutes and it's quite hard to find the time in a, in a busy newsroom. But my experience is that that the people at the top understand these issues Better now than they did, even if there's more, more to do. It's kind of interesting.
1: The <clears throat> point about having kids, so I think one of the things my friend found so difficult about it was she had this kind of heightened sense of sensitivity afterwards because she would kind of like think about terrible things that were happening in the world that she had to work on and relate it back to her kids and have this kind of. I think it's quite common. I wondered, because obviously you have, you have two sons, right? I
0: so, so identify with that. I mean, I think subliminally, I think it's one of the reasons I came off the road. I mean, I, I did. I mean, I did say when I became a presenter that I still wanted to report, but to do it full time as a foreign correspondent because I, I genuinely I do know that um, once Francis and I had had kids, that you know I'd, I'd go Rwanda, Liberia, I'd see and you know a, a kind of ten-year-old boy with his five-year-old sister, and he was the only one left to care for her and I kept doing that thing of thinking of Adam and Matt our boys and it just did my head in and I think it was one of the reasons that I just found you know emotionally it became harder to deal with plus I think also I'd, I'd come to a point where I no longer could find the language the right words to describe and explain things that I was sometimes seeing for the third and fourth time sometimes in the same country so you know take a place like South Sudan I'd been there you know back in the um, very early 90s and i was still there sort of 10 years later doing much the same story and thinking how do i explain this you know nothing's changed but the kids thing played into that big time
1: hello mickey here sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure but i just thought as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. So your book, The Burning Land, yep. um, it is your first work of fiction,
0: yeah. I believe. Yeah, and it is, it is.
1: It is a... political thriller can you just tell us a little bit
0: about what the book's about so the book is this is something by the way you know we're talking about fact and fiction fact there are people companies agencies governments in the rich world right now eyeing up land in the poor world and they're doing it for lots of reasons mostly because they're worried about food security and they want to make sure they've got ready access to land on which to grow food okay that's fact Tried to nail it down as a journalist, very hard to do. Some of these deals are very opaque and so on. In the burning land, I'm imagining the first skirmishes in a battle over land when this sort of thing is happening. People are, Rich people are coming along with the help of a corrupt elite in South Africa. And they're just, just taking the land literally from under the feet of, of poor local people in South Africa into this kind of these these deals into these deals that are going on over land into the conflagration about land and the competition for it comes a woman called Lindy Seaton. She works for a conflict resolution organisation and she finds herself at the centre of this battle over land in South Africa. She gets drawn into it. She arrives there as a professional. She ends up, it becomes a personal thing. And the story, it's about the battle for land but it's about what that battle for land does to the people involved. Lindy Seaton primarily, this woman from London who travels there, but the people she meets, a, a guy called Kahisa R- uh, Rapabani, and, and the two of them come together. They end up having kind of days, really, to save their country, indeed save themselves, but that's where the, the, the kind of whodunit and the thriller bit comes, so I won't say any more. No, spoilers. <laughs>
1: it says in the blurb... <laughs> It's all uh, true. Delves into the spaces between dispatches he, you, obviously, George, has brought to the nation as a reporter. So is it sort of based on anything, is it, is it inspired by any events?
0: When it says it, it fills in the spaces between the dispatches I'm brought to, it, it, it's true in this sense that journalism is about facts and you search them out, you research them, when you're sure about them, you report them. But those facts even if you when you line them all up they don't always get you to the truth or they don't always tell you about motivation about lust, about love about anger about frustration all those things that, that drive people towards actions I mean my kind of journalism television <coughs> journalists they're incredibly powerful doesn't help explain why a good man ends up a bad man or how a powerless woman, can sometimes be become more powerful you know but it's just by example those sorts of changes that that happen and i felt those are the limits of journalism that fiction would allow me to explore that side of it so yeah they do fill in the the, the spaces and some of the events i mean there's a couple of scenes of, of violence in it and, and they're quite shocking they're not they're not long and i don't dwell on them but they are quite shocking And all I would say, I've seen that. So in some sense, it's drawn from my experience as a journalist who spent a lot of time in, in, in conflict. But that's where it stopped.
2: Can I ask you about the process of writing? Yeah. Because... You know, you've been up until now presumably been restricted quite often by length, you know, sentence structure getting everything in. Was it really liberating to just be able
1: to run a bit wild?
0: Totally. Liberating is a good word. To- totally liberating to do that. I enjoyed the writing and I and I also to some extent found it easy, you know, it, it, I guess it's what I've been working myself up to for 40 years, you know, as a, as a writer of one sort or another. The rest of it, about fiction, you know, characterization, plot and so on, was very, very challenging and I, you know, there was draft after draft after draft. But the other thing about the book, and I hope, I don't, you know, if, if any of your listeners become readers of my book, I mean it started actually with a woman, a character in the book called Lindy Seaton and she, I don't know, she she was, I knew who she was and and. I knew she was going to get involved in this, this, this kind of protest thing that's going on in South Africa. And I was just interested in this notion that, you know, at home, all of us, I think anyway, are kind of constrained by convention, constrained by what our friends and family expect of us, you know. So when I'm here, I'm dad, um, I'm husband, uh, I'm a colleague, if I get away from that, I can kind of almost reinvent myself, I can explore other sides of me. And um, that's something I wanted to do in the book to look at Lindy Seaton and what would happen to her when she had to work on, on almost on a minute by minute basis of intuition and instinct rather than than, you know, as the kind of policy maker she's back in back in London, where she's sitting down and trying to being able to weigh arguments up and in the middle of a protest she doesn't have the time to do that and that was the other thing that, again you know where would you put that in the news report you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just really enjoyed getting to know lindy and how, how she um, reacted and I, I mean I, and it was a woman because so you well you know. can tell me if i'm wrong or not but i felt that women and i grew up in a household of women i had four sisters women feel that pressure to conform to a stereotype more so than men men are allowed a license that that women you know it's harder for women to break free of that and I wanted to see how Lindy would be when she was able to break not free of We're furiously that. I should say <laughs> for the purposes of the
2: day. Okay. Bearing in mind that your stock in trade is fact was it quite difficult to to look at something objectively without saying I don't think that would happen you know finding your own plot holes.
0: You know unlike a, a news report which is done under pressure and you have you know an hour and it, it's gone. Yeah. You know, it's either right or wrong. And the great, great thing about writing a book is, you know, it takes a couple of years and you keep going back and keep going back. And, and that's what I said about the plotting. I mean, I just, I don't know how other people do Well, I do know how other people do it. My thing, I, I literally just started. As I say, I knew Lindy in my head and I kind of imagined her in a, in the first scene and then i just started writing and then just kind of went the story went the trouble with writing that way without a proper plan is that you do find all the holes yeah. you go back well how did that happen you know she's not even in south africa yeah yet. <laughs> you know or whatever <laughs> and, and so you kind of go back and, and and have to have to rewrite so so there's that so constant self-examination and, and so on and correction but also you know Fran, my wife, if she was fed up with it, she didn't say it and at least not in so many words, but she lived this bloody thing with uh, lived through this thing, and there were lots of times I'd say to her, Do you think Lindy would do that? That was a question that I asked over and over again on, you know, driving you know, in the car on country walks and so on. And um, I mean, I think I think I do say in acknowledgments to the book that she helped shape those characters because uh, it, it was that way for me anyway. I wasn't that confident in my in myself to think I could just do it all on my own and get it right. And to the latter stages, of course, my editor, an amazing woman at uh, Canongate, helped me to, you know, on structure and things like that. So it is a highly individualistic thing. You're on your own for a lot, but there are other people involved as well.
2: Is there going to be
0: more? More fiction. I'd like to. I mean, as you used the word, Hannah, before about liberating and I, I must say I've got a taste for it that that I think I'm telling a truth that I wouldn't have been able to tell a, as a journalist and it might sound crazy but I, you know I'm thinking yes more fiction I wonder if I could write a play there's kind of no end of sort of ideas in, in my head I haven't plotted anything or planned anything as yet I'm just sort of getting over really the coming to the tail end of, of, yeah. of some of the stuff around this book but I will turn my hand to it I think yeah to more fiction.
2: I like the idea of a play. I still think there's a there's a space in the market for something that's there in a newsroom. Oh, yeah. Because I just don't think anything that has been so far, had, uh, apart from satire, yeah. I don't think anything's done it. I mean, there's got to be I there must think, be
0: people now already. Yeah. I, I would think, especially the Brexit thing and how, See, how do you explain that? I mean, this is, I'm genuinely asking this question. Okay. I mean, if you think of where we are now and how divided we are, so. You know, twenty twelve. Do you remember twenty twelve, the year of the Olympics? Yeah, oh, the talks about this a
2: lot. Well, I mean,
0: you know, like we <laughs> yeah. were, we were the best. Yeah, you know, we were oh, open. Two yeah, we yeah. were, we were open. We were global. We were all of these lo- amazing yeah. things, and we were, by the way, yeah. we yeah. put on a bloody good show. Yeah, and we did well. You know, on on, on the track and in the field. Yeah. So that's twenty twelve. Four years later, and and some other narrative has changed. And we, and you know, the people one a lot of people were accusing the other lot of being narrow and. Kind of small-minded. The other lot saying they were being elites and so on. Now those two things happen. I mean, going back to this business about facts and, and what you know, what are the things that links fact? What happened in that journey from twenty twelve to twenty sixteen? It's not a generation apart. It's four years yeah. apart, for God's sake. What does that tell us uh, about? And so I'd like to see a play that explains that mm. that journey. We're, they're both us, by the way. And I don't think it's good enough to say, well, you know, I'm only the twenty twelve Brit. Yeah. I mean, I think we need to own the whole lot. I mean, whichever way we voted in the referendum... Oh, no, we... we're
1: all awful.
0: <laughs> no, we're <laughs> not, Ted. No, we're not. We're not all awful.
2: It's the we... other people. They're bad. Yeah, we've <laughs> just got
0: to find the better angels yeah. in ourselves. I had I mean...
1: to remind myself yesterday not to have arguments with strangers on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I, had to, I, had, I, I tweeted something and I had to delete my tweet because I read it back yeah. and I thought, no, don't do that. Don't, don't well, do that. I heard on the
0: radio today, <clears throat> obviously with an election coming up, and, and this, again, affects more women than men, I think. In fact, I know the amount of abuse there is. And there's this. there was a thought, I don't know if it's possible or how it would be done, but a kind of Twitter nudge. So when you're t- ready to you know tap in a, a message, a tweet, you'd get nudged and say, do you really want to send this? I don't know how they'd work out. am I it. being a horrible person?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know how they would it be every tweet or yeah. whatever. But but it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know if you had to shout it out on a bus to someone, you wouldn't do yeah. it. But it's, somehow it's easier on You have to be
2: really careful. The yeah. other day, I uh, during the uh, Tory party conference, Adria Ledson gave a presentation that uh, was just terrible to an audience that was just staring in blank amazement. And I compared her... See, that's her the sort
0: of thing you could say. I could never say yeah, that. Yeah, obviously. No.
2: And I compared her to a man who used to sell knives in Debenhams.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Who
2: everybody I know knows because, you know, because it was just funny. It was the the guy that used to sell knives in Debenhams. It's a joke. But it wasn't until I tweeted it that I looked back and I thought, wow, if you read that and you didn't know the story about the guy in Debenhams, it looks like I just put Andrea led some needs to buy a knife and it seemed like a really yeah, violent yeah, yeah, yeah. thing to say yeah, yeah. and it, out of context it sounded yeah. awful so I had to immediately delete it and then go I'm really sorry that I tweeted that and I think yeah people there should be a button that said to me
1: hang on, that sounds a bit violent. Maybe rain it in, even though it was just a silly joke. So what were you going to tweet? So what it was, was I tweeted something about Andrew Bridgerton. He's an MP. He's an MP, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. who apparently showed John Burkow what for yesterday, except he didn't. It was really lame. So I tweeted something about this, and a man uh, didn't agree with me. I think in his Twitter bio it said he was, he detests the EU. Right, Okay. So, you know, his cards are on the table there. And uh, he just said he was fantastic or something like that. And I was, I was, I'd screenshotted his tweet, and I was ready to tweet him, He'd be like, yeah, define fantastic, knife face, side face, side face. And and I tweeted it, and I just thought, don't do that. He's entitled to his yeah. opinion, and if I'm going to say, well, this is this on Twitter, if I'm going to put my opinion out there, other people might yeah. react to it, and if yeah. and it's actually okay if they don't agree with me.
2: Shit, that leads me to a point. You you. In a way, cannot have an opinion because of your job in this climate. Is that actually a blessing to not have a public facing? Well, opinion? I
0: mean, I definitely, think it's a, it's a blessing from you know our, our audience's point of view because there's so much static, so yeah. much noise, white noise around, you know, around the news or what, or what even what, what is the news yeah. and what's fake and what isn't. I, th- I think it, it is a blessing that not me, George Allen personally, but but that all of us. Uh, have an obligation to provide something that is uh balance and it, you know, it is interesting, isn't it? You know, balance is almost becoming like a dirty word. Ooh, you're yeah, balanced. We, we say aren't that, you? that a lot.
2: You like know. The, the old fashioned art of compromise is you know,
0: lost. And of course there's balance as balance. I mean, you know, you shouldn't balance one climate change yeah. denier against a thousand mm-hmm. scientists. So but but yeah, no, I think it is a blessing actually and and and, and I think we do I'm really glad that the BBC uh, organisation, like the BBC and the ITV, you know my colleagues over at ITV, that, that we are, uh, I think, under some obligation just just to, to not just sit there and, and and give our opinions about everything. Because imagine if I said, you know, if I sat on the news at six, and I've been presenting this programme for 15 years or something, and people knew what I thought about these things, why would they ever listen to me? Yeah. How could they ever trust me? So I think it is quite important to be impartial and to leave all my screaming and shouting until when I get home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) George, your book, The Burning Land, published by Canongate, is out now, available at all good bookshops. Absolutely. And where can we follow you so we can send you lovely and non-aggressive tweets? I've I've,
0: I've got a a, a BBC Twitter account and a personal one, which I think is at George Alagaya. So I'd love to hear what people think actually as long as they're nice as long as they're nice well you know what i did the other day i probably shouldn't have done but my wife's been in a book group for years and years and years and one of them decided to choose the burning land and they're all women and uh i went along well i I didn't go along for the whole thing i thought but i said well, you know if you want say, me to That's come,
1: local, George.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, so i wasn't there for all of it but I said, I'd come up and you know, answer any questions. And I, I actually, I really enjoyed it. And of course, I'd finish it thinking, blimey, I could have done it better, couldn't I? <laughs> you, know, I mean, they, you know, they just, it was interesting, just even within the group and what they thought, one of them got out of it, the other one didn't. And both of them, what, were, what they got out of it was different to what I thought I was giving and so on. So it's, it's a great, it's a living thing, this thing. You know, that's what I'm realising is that it, it doesn't kind of, almost doesn't matter what I wanted to say in the book people are interpreting it in different ways. So I'd like to hear that.
1: George, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars.